It is a sweet joy to be back together tonight and uh, continuing our study on the culture and this, uh, what, my, what my, we call it, uh, the strange new world uh, we find ourselves in today. And uh, I hope this series has been helpful to you. And just out of curiosity, how many of you have picked up the book and either are reading it or intend to read it or have already read it? Raise them high. Just want to just curious. This is not to shame anyone, okay? Some of you are thinking, I've already had enough with this series. Um, I don't need to read a book. No, it's, it's, uh, it's good. The, the joke is kind of like when we, when we go through these new and complex concepts, it's, it's like the first coat of paint, right? This sermon series is like the first coat of paint. You might pick up the book. That would be like a second coat of paint. And if you're really a glutton for punishment, you can pick up his longer version. And, uh, and slogged through that one as well. And then that would be like your third coat of paint. Um, anyway, I, I hope this has been helpful for you. Uh, it's been tremendously helpful for me. I have read that longer book. And even sitting through this sermon series with the other men who have brought it to us, you know, definitely picking up things, concepts being cemented. So, um, yeah, I'm very, very thankful for those men and how they've served us so well. And they did the hard part, which was working us through, really, the argument of the book. <clears throat> now, I, I and, and Mark Hager, after me, get the easy part of, uh, of applying it um, to, the, to the scenario that we're in today. And last week, Pastor Brian really teed us up. He transitioned us into the applicational section of our series. And if you remember back, he asked the question, how should the church respond in this strange new world, or maybe even to this strange new world, and one of the most encouraging things to me, kind of coming out of that session, was that the answer is that we just need to keep doing what we're doing. Um, that was incredibly helpful, motivating, to keep on doing what we've been doing, to keep trying to grow in health as a church, to keep on trying to boldly influence others in truth, not to back away. And that's because the main things have not changed. The gospel hasn't changed, human hearts haven't changed, the power of Christ hasn't changed, His sufficient word hasn't changed, the mandate to make disciples hasn't changed. So what do we do? Just simplistically, we stay after following our King and we stay busy with trying to obey Him. It might be more costly for us in the days ahead, but the mission has, is staying the same. And that's a sweet encouragement. Now, with that said, though, there is an intense cultural pressure breathing down the neck of the church. And any time that happens, it's always good to think through it with a fresh biblical perspective. Just to make sure that we're not being taken in, you know. And we need to think through these things and, and address these, these intense cultural pressures for a number of reasons. New pressures in the church, or new pressures in the culture, excuse me, they often introduce us to counseling issues that maybe you and I have not encountered much in the past. How do you help that new believer who tells you they're struggling with gender dysphoria? New pressures also raise new questions of how to respond to situations that we've not faced before in the workplace or in our families. When someone tells you they're pansexual, and they want you to respect that, 
And you think, what is that? Um, I'm not really sure what that is uh, or what it would even mean if I disrespect that. So these topics, the topics of helping others change in the church, the topics of how to evangelize effectively, these are crucial topics to think through kind of afresh in a series like this, and we're going to. Uh, Mark Hager is going to address both of those topics in the last two messages. But before we hit any of those, we want to go further upstream, if you will, because before we seek to help others change, before we seek to help others out of this cultural confusion, we need to make sure that we're not confused ourselves. And I think it's, it's naive for us to think that we haven't been influenced at some level by these cultural pressures. And one of the most sinister and cunning of these pressures is that, that pressure to think that our inner desires are authoritative. Right? We've heard that week in and week out. Many of the men have touched on that pressure. And this, this pressure says that my desires represent the real me, who I truly am. Represents my identity. It's the pressure to give vent to these desires. The pressure that says I should embrace these feelings if I'm going to be truly authentic. I should embrace them if I'm going to be truly fulfilled and happy, truly human. And it's the pressure that says that to suppress or restrain those desires is damaging. It's, de- it's, it's depressing. It's even dehumanizing, I hear people say. Now, even as I say that, you're probably sitting there thinking, look, I know I'm not supposed to give vent to my wayward sinful desires, Clay. But while many in the church know they're not supposed to give in to those desires, they're often confused by the desires they find in their own hearts. We often don't know exactly how we're supposed to change. How do we think about the fact that even though we're Christians, we still have incredibly disturbing desires for sin at times right here inside of us? We might wonder things like, does that mean I'm not a real believer? Does it mean I'm living some kind of subpar, lower life Christian existence? If I really am a Christian trying to change, shouldn't my desires fall in line? Shouldn't obedience eventually become easier? Am I being hypocritical when I I obey, even if I don't want to? See, we're often confused about these desires when when we encounter them in our own hearts. And if we don't get biblical clarity about those desires, if we don't get biblical clarity about the change process itself, that's when this sinister cultural pressure starts seeping in. And here's what I mean. You might be tempted to think things like, well, maybe the culture is right, at least in some sense. Maybe I am just fundamentally an anxious person. Maybe I am just a gay person because I experience these desires. It surely feels like that's the real me. Am I really supposed to fight this? Does God even want me fighting this? Doesn't God want me just to be happy? 
it would be so much easier to just resign myself to the reality that this is who I am and that I'm always going to be this way. And when we find ourselves thinking along these lines, it reveals that we have been much more influenced by the cultural pressure than we realize. We often don't know how to think biblically about our desires, and that stems from confusion about how we're supposed to change. Change is harder than we anticipated, and we're easily demoralized because we think it shouldn't be this way. And ironically, the net result of this confusion and discouragement is that we're stunted in our growth in the Christian life. So, before we turn our attention to helping others, whether we're helping others in the church, talk about that next time, we're helping others in the world and evangelism, that's the final topic. Before we do those things, we first need to make sure we've got clarity ourselves in what to do about these wayward desires when we encounter them. And the beautiful thing about Scripture is that it is fully sufficient to guide us. It helps us understand why we may at times crave evil, even as a believer. And as we're going to see tonight, even though we are new creatures in Christ, we still carry around what the Bible describes as the old self. And that self is still lurking around, still full of evil desires. And the Bible doesn't just describe our problem, but it tells us what to do with it, what to do about it. It tells us that we must declare an all-out war on this old self, and it shows us how. And one way we summarize this is we could say it tells us to fight these impulses by faith. So that's the title of our session tonight, Fighting by Faith, Learning How to Wage War Against these, These Wayward Desires. And as we understand more of how to combat these sinful impulses, we're going to be much more equipped to help others in the church. We'll be much more equipped to evangelize. We'll have clarity ourselves, and we'll be able to take the speck out of our brother's eye, to use Jesus' words. So tonight, we're going to look at one crucial text from Paul that teaches us this process of fighting our wayward desires. And that text is Ephesians 4, 22-24. So you can go ahead and open there. Ephesians chapter 4, and the verses we're going to be looking at specifically are 22 through 24. And my goal tonight is to to give you a crash course on how to battle your own sinful impulses. I want you to to fight them instead of giving in to them like the culture is telling us to do. And this is going to be a high-altitude view. For some of you newer in the faith, this might be the first time you've heard some of this stuff. It might seem overwhelming, but just hang hang with it. It's very simple. If you want to boil it all down, it's just learning to believe Jesus. It's learning to take Jesus at His word and yield yourself to Him above what you think or feel. Boil it down. It's learning to trust Jesus. But for others of you, this this will probably be just a review, and hopefully a good review, of the things that we've taught week in and week out here at the church. Things you're learning from Pastor Brian in the pulpit. Things you're getting in your Sunday school class. 
And this will just be a crash course, kind of an applicational message in trying to, to live out these truths day in and day out. So, let's look at these verses and um, kind of get the context here. We'll read them and then we'll jump in. So in this chapter, in chapter 4 in Ephesians, Paul is launching into really the practical se- section of the book of Ephesians. He's t- he told us in the first three chapters about our, our new identity in Christ, that we were once dead, we've been raised to life now in Him. We're not who we used to be. We've been given new life in and through Jesus when we believed in Him. And now that new life needs to lead to practical changes, day in and day out. And that's what he's going to detail out in Ephesians 4. He says, when, that, when we learn the gospel, we learned it in a certain way. We learned it in a way that brings about transformation. So he says, we shouldn't live like the Gentiles who give themselves over to every kind of impurity. Picking it up in verse 20, this is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Here it is. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desire. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, a few short verses here, but in these verses, Paul lays out really three essential practices. If we're going to wage war against these desires, we're going to understand them correctly and know what to do with them, we have to know what Paul's talking about in these verses, and we have to know how they apply to our situation. All right, so he's going to give us three essential practices of fighting by faith in these verses. Three essential practices, and they're, they're very self-evident here. We could describe the first one like this. We could say, we must trash the old self. We must trash the old self. We see this in verse 22. He says, we learn Jesus, as the truth taught in him, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So the first practice Paul outlines here to the fight of faith is learning to, what he says, put off the old self. So I'm saying here, throw, throw that old self in the trash. And that's what Paul's getting at when he says to put it off. Okay, he's, using a clothing, he's using clothing imagery here, a metaphor. And... Uh, the idea is that the old self is like soiled clothes. <clears throat> so you new parents in, in the room, you know, your infant does his, his or her business, soils the, you know, the onesie. You might try to wash it out, but sometimes they're so bad that you can't, you can't wash that thing out. The only option is to what? Throw it out. You just got to throw it away. And that's the imagery here. Of our old clothes. We are corrupted in our old selves. The stains won't come out no matter how hard we wash them. The only thing we can do is to throw them away. And that's the idea here. That's what Paul is saying that we do with our old self. It's quite different than what the culture is telling us to do with ourselves. To embrace it, he's telling us to throw it away. It's useless. It's corrupted. It is unprofitable. You cannot recover it. You can only throw it away. But that raises another question. 
right? So what is this old self that Paul's telling us to, to trash here? Literally, it is the old man, the old man, or the old Adam. You might think of it as the old humanity, or the old Adamic nature. That fully deceived and, as a result, fully corrupt nature that every single human being on the face of this planet is born into, because we're all born into Adam. And Paul goes on to describe our old self very, very carefully. Notice what he says about it. We can learn a lot here about our practices. He says it belongs to our former manner of life. And what he means here is that our lives as unbelievers, it's what, it's what, it's what our lives as unbelievers used to look like. It's how we used to think. It's how we used to live. It's what we used to value before our lives were oriented around Christ. Now, because it belongs to our, this old self belongs to our former manner of life, this implies something. It implies that putting off our old selves involves refusing to identify with our sin or refusing to identify with the old self. You've got to realize that this is not you anymore. Now that you're in Christ... You can't keep thinking of yourself as an anxious person or a gay person if you struggle with same-sex desires or an angry person if you're easily irritable, set off, you like to explode. You can't characterize yourself that way. Why? Because that was the old you, according to Paul. That's not you anymore. Now you are in Christ. Your identity has completely changed. You've been given a new set of clothes, as we're going to see here in a moment, which means a new identity. You are part of the new creation now. Not because of anything you've done, but because of what your Savior has done. And you're part of a new creation. You're a new creature that still struggles with the parts of the old creation, with fear or lust or anger or fill in the blank. But, That's not your fundamental identity. Fear, anger, lust, those are not your fundamental identities. Christ is your identity. And we have to think of ourselves in these terms. Because that's the exact opposite of what the culture is telling us. These inner cravings, these inner desires, especially the inner sexual desires, form the very identity of a person. That's what they're saying. And that runs completely counter to this verse right here is what we're seeing. These sinful impulses are part of the old Adam that are corrupt and destined for destruction. But let's get practical for a minute. What would this sound like not to identify with our sin? Here's what it might sound like. Let's, we'll, take the, we'll take the sin of fear or worry. It might sound something like this. I realize that I'm often afraid. That's true. But that is not my identity anymore. I am not enslaved to it like I used to be because I'm now in Christ. That was old clay. Old clay who's still hanging around and tempting me to be afraid. I know it's going to be a battle. I know it may even be a besetting sin. But Christ has given me His new life and now He's going to help me live it out. That's what it would look like 
if we are embracing this idea that this is not who I am anymore. Notice what else Paul says about this old self. He says it's corrupt. Do you see that? It belongs to our former manner of life and is corrupt. He's getting at the fact that our old self is contaminated. And it's contaminated, why? Because it's characterized by sinful actions, right? Sinful behavior. We get angry, we gossip, we grow resentful, we're envious, we tear others down, we exalt ourselves. If you're a kid, you disrespect your parents. If you're a parent, get angry with your kids. We lust, we lie. And the list goes on. That's the old self. And since we're corrupt, this implies that we have to then recognize and confess the sinfulness of our old self if we're going to put it off. We've got to recognize how sinful our old self is, and we have to confess it as such if we're going to get rid of it, put it away. Now, that might sound simple at first glance, but it's actually a lot harder than we realize. Because we're all tempted to think our sin is not that bad. We're very tempted to minimize our sin. We're tempted to make excuses for it. Or blame it on other people or on our circumstances. We label it with something less severe than what the Bible actually calls it. But if we're going to obey the command to put off the old self, then we have to see it as it actually is. We have to see the old self as a severe corruption. Instead of making excuses, we need to own it before the Lord and before those we've sinned against. And that's biblical confession. 1 John 1.9 So what would this sound like? sounds something like this, maybe in a, in a prayer to the Lord. It would sound like this. Lord, I am tempted to minimize this fear in my heart. I say things like, I'm just stressed. Or, man, I'm really tempted to blame it on my circumstances. Half the time, I don't even think of it as sin against you. I don't even recognize that I'm doing it. But, Lord, your command to me is to be anxious for nothing. My fear is actually unbelief. It's truly a corruption and it is causing lots of problems in my life. I often hurt others because I'm afraid. I won't take risks for Christ because I'm afraid. I'm often indecisive because I'm afraid. Forgive me and help me cultivate courage. Now notice he goes on in describing the corruption of the old self. He tells us where it comes from. This is crucial. Okay. He says this corruption is fueled by, literally, the desires of deceit. And what he's saying here is we want this corruption. This old self is corrupt because it's craving sinful things. Our old selves desire sin. We crave it. Now, this is an interesting little phrase, and and it deserves some thought here. 
If you're reading from the ESV, and I'm just curious, how many of you are reading from the ESV? Okay. You'll notice that this phrase is translated as deceitful desires. You see that? If you're reading from an NASB, it's translated the desires of deceit. But if let's just hypothetically go with the ESV, these, these, these uh, deceitful desires. That implies, the way they translate it, it implies that it's the desires that are doing the deceiving. The desires themselves are deceitful. Now that's certainly true, right? James 1 talks about that. Desires are they're luring us and kind of tempting us. But I think it's actually the other way around in this text. It's the deception that leads to the craving. It's the deception that's churning up this craving for corruption. So if we go to the NASB, it translates this Greek phrase more literally. And it's literally the desires of deceit. And so you could interpret this as the desires produced by deceit. And I think that's much better here for a lot of reasons. We should interpret this, I think, as the desires that are produced by deceit or the desires that spring up from deception. Now, this is nothing new, right? Paul is just drawing off of a text like Genesis 3, which outlines this very process that took Eve from deception to the cravings to the transgression, right? You remember how it goes. Eve interacted with a snake in Genesis 3. And as she did that, she was subtly deceived. Her deception caused a wrong assessment of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree, she said that the text says that she thought that the tree was good for food after the conversation with the snake. So, step one conversation with the snake, deception. And that deception changes the way she's looking at this tree. This tree that's poison, that's going to lead to death, according to God, she assesses as the tree that's good for food. And then, because she perceived the tree as good, what happens next? She craved it. The text says that she saw that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And that was after her assessment of it as good. It was desired to make one wise. Her deception led to a craving. It led to a desire for that perceived wisdom. And then that desire led to something else. That desire led to her transgression. Right? She took it, ate it, gave it to the man who was just as culpable as she was. And it's the same progression here in Ephesians 4. Ultimately, our old nature is deceived And that leads us to crave the things that will kill us. And that's why we transgress. Now, I'm taking some time to spell all this out for a couple reasons. One is because those sinful cravings we experience, those powerful temptations, are coming from somewhere. They're coming from a deceived mind. Those sinful cravings, those powerful temptations are coming from a deceived mind. That's the root. 
In other words, the believer that has lustful desires for someone of the same sex craves it ultimately because he or she is deceived, not because it's their fundamental identity. Does that make sense? They, we crave these things because we're deceived, not because it's who we are, not because it's our identity. Now, this also implies something else. If we're going to change, if we're going to put off the old self, it has to include more than just changing behaviors, doesn't it? Paul says we have to put off the entirety of the old self, which includes our deceived thinking. It includes those lies that we believe, those lies that churn up our desires for evil, and lead us to act on in sin. So if we take a step back for a minute, do you know that your old self is constantly talking to you? Right? You have to put it off, so that means the dark passenger is still riding with you. And your old self is there, and it's talking to you. It's constantly lying to you. Underneath our sin patterns is this reel of thinking, this meditating, this evaluating, this assessing that's going on. And often we don't even realize that that's what we're doing. It's rooted, if it's not rooted in Scripture, this assessing, meditating, thinking, evaluating, if it's not rooted in biblical truth, then it's deceived. So that means if we're going to put off the old self, we need to get our thoughts out in the open. We need to capture these deceived thoughts, as difficult as they might be to face. We need to be able to evaluate our thoughts, to compare them with what Scripture actually says, like we're going to see in just a moment. Now, this is just a practical suggestion, but what I encourage people to do, what I do myself, is I write out what I'm thinking in the moment that I'm tempted. Or after I've been tempted, I try to remember back to what, what was I thinking about? What was I saying to myself? What was that reel that was going in my head? We've got to capture what's going on because if we're tempted to sin, it's guaranteed that lies are swirling around in there. So just think about this. If, you, if there's a sin pattern in your life, you can automatically know that you, you do it because you want to. And then if you take one more step back, you want to because you're deceived. It's automatic. Every time. And so, if we want to battle this at, at, at the root level, we've got to capture what's going on internally. We have to capture that, the, the thoughts of the old self. Now, let me just illustrate this for you, because I know that if if this is a new concept for you, it's kind of like, what what exactly does this look like? Let's keep keep just working this anxiety example, because nobody struggles with that, right? This is what it would look like if, if if I were trying to capture an anxious moment in a journal, okay? Today, my boss told me that we had to bump up the deadline on the project that I'm responsible for. And we 
when she came in and told me that, I became very overwhelmed at work. We were already struggling to meet the, that later deadline, the, the deadline that before she bumped it up. And when she came in with that news, my, my heart immediately started racing. I felt panicky. My hands started tingling. I became short with my coworkers. And I kept saying things like this in my, in my head. How are we possibly going to meet this deadline? And then my mind raced to what would happen if we didn't. We're going to lose this client. And gosh, how would people think of it? What would my boss think? This is going to reflect very poorly on me. I am the manager of this project. I might even lose my job. If I lose my job, where am I going to work? How am I going to support my family? And again, this was literally on repeat in my mind as I tried to work. I became distracted. I became less productive. And I was an emotional roller coaster, swinging back and forth between resenting my boss and feeling depressed at the workload. Because I know what it's going to cost me to get this job done. So that's what I mean by capturing the real. Getting that out to see what's going on inside of you in that moment that you're tempted to be anxious. Because the old self is all over that. The old self is in there whispering, deceiving, working, lacing lies with truth. And we need God's Spirit and the Word of God to help us untangle that. And that leads us to our next practice. Paul tells us that we must renew our minds with the truth. or to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. Verse 23. If we're going to really put that fearful and manipulative self away... We have to renew our minds with truth. We can't begin to evaluate the lies of the old self apart from the truth. So what is this renewal? What exactly is is Paul getting at here? Well, you ready for it? Renewal means to make something new. Alright? Pretty profound, right? But here Paul is talking about our thinking. We're to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, he says. And the only thing that does this renovating work is God's Word animated by His Spirit. And we have both as believers. So we have tremendous opportunity for hope and for change. Before we came to Christ, our minds were filled with vain and empty thinking, Paul says in chapter 4, verse 17. Our minds, our thinking was based on our own sinful perceptions of how things are. But now we have a new capacity. We're alive to the truth and we can receive it. As we learn God's word, the lies are exposed and he enables us to embrace his truth. But it raises another question for us, doesn't it? How does this renewal happen? What does it look like? Well, you can think of renewal kind of in two ways. You can think of it sort of in a generic sense. And generically, our minds are renewed any time God's Word comes to us and we receive it in faith. Okay? Any time His Word comes to us and we receive it in faith. 
So public preaching, through a conversation with a friend, personal reading of Scripture, all these ways the truth's coming to us kind of from the top down, if you will. And it renews us. But here, and for our purposes, I'm focused on kind of a, a tactical mind renewal. That's aimed at renewing your particular thought patterns in your particular area of struggle. But what does that tactical mind renewal look like? How would we go about it? Well, let's pick up where we left off from that first point. Let's say you've gotten those thoughts, those anxious thoughts, out on paper. And now the mind renewal process kicks in, and it starts with evaluating the thoughts of the old self. It starts with with thinking through all those things you've said or that that your old self is saying in the moment of temptation. Once once you've kind of gotten all those thoughts out on paper, you need to ask, is this true? Is this biblical? How would the Bible address my own thinking right now? Now, if you've never really done this before, this is the hardest part. Because if you're deceived, it's kind of hard to know, you know, how am I deceived, right? The Bible anticipates this, that this is going to be hard for us, and that's why we need each other. When we're deceived, we often don't know it, And we need the church. And in fact, Paul has already alluded to this in Ephesians 4, and he's going to allude to it again right after our text. How much we need each other. Look back in verse 15. Really, this whole chapter of Ephesians 4 tells us that that God has given us leaders in the church back in chapter 12, or back back in verse 12, 11 and 12. And these, these leaders are to equip the saints for the work of ministry, which includes this renovating work. And then, look in verse 15, we're to grow up by speaking the truth in love to each other. We're to grow up in every way into Him who is the head. The way we grow up, in other words, is by speaking this truth in love to each other. Then he goes on in verse 25, after our text, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. So the church is designed by God to be the center for the truth and for the truth to be reverberated among its members. As we identify lies in our own hearts, as we're enabled to forsake falsehood, put away falsehood, verse 25, then we have the capacity to help other people change, to speak that truth to their particular situation. So the Bible's realistic about this. So if if this is new for you, and you're going to need help discerning the lies that you're tempted with in that moment. Galatians 6.1 talks about if you're ensnared, You need a spiritual person to come alongside you and help you, to restore you. I think he's talking about the same thing here. Galatians 6.1 So if that's you, if you're entrapped, if you're immature in the faith, there is no shame in that. We've all been there. We've all received help. And so seek that out from from your leadership. But again, as we enter back into this mind renewal process... You want to begin to evaluate this, this, inner, this, inner, these inner, this inner self's dialogue. These thoughts feel so natural, and they, they seem to make so much sense to us that they're often hard to discern. 
but discern them we must. That's what this mind renewal process means. It means we need to find particular truth that's going to smoke out and reveal the particular lies that we're believing in the moment. So, let's go back to our example. The anxious person. They've got the, the, the new responsibility at work, and they're panicking. There are probably several lies floating around in this anxious person's heart, several deceitful whisperings of this old self. And first, this person's tempted to think that this situation is not good for them. Is that fair? That this is the worst thing for him. Now, it's certainly a significant challenge, possibly even a trial. But according to Romans 8.28, this is good for him. In God's wise providence, he has designed this situation to conform him to the image of Christ. If nothing else, this truth should free him in the moment to take a step back and ask God, what are you seeking to do in my heart and life through this situation? Now, second, if that's the first lie, you know, this is the worst thing for me, there may be another lie that's floating around, and this, he might be terrified that he won't be taken care of and able to provide for himself. He may even be tempted to feel that he's abandoned by God. But the opposite is actually the case. God deeply loves him, and God is with him in that very moment, ready to help him. God has committed himself to this man's ultimate good. And he knows what he needs before he ever asks. And God will provide for his every need. That's what the truth is, the scriptures say. And third, this man might be tempted to view his project as a kind of ball and chain, right? This burden that's meant to make his life a miserable existence. That's also a lie. The reality is that these tasks are part of the good works that God has prepared beforehand for this man to walk in, according to Ephesians 2.10. Now, he might not be able to get this project done in time, but even then, he would need to entrust those consequences of, the, of that late project to God as he, as he keeps on working hard. Okay, My point here is just to show you that the lies of the old man are, are laced in this inner dialogue, and we've got to begin exposing those lies with the truth in our particular situations. But it doesn't stop there. We have to then, once we've identified that truth, okay, we've got this truth, we know that this is going to obliterate my particular lie, now we need to load up our minds with that specific truth. We renew our minds by storing up that truth in our minds. So that means once you've found whatever passages most obliterate that specific lie that you're tempted to believe, you've got to get that truth in you. It has to be accessible in the moment. Now, I like to tell people that 
that we've got to make this a daily practice, okay? especially in the, the areas of besetting sin. We've got to know what these truths are. We have to review them at the beginning of our day. I would even say put them on the top of your quiet time list and start there because I can guarantee you that God cares more about your besetting anxiety and, tr- and you trusting Him in that today than He does about you ticking off the box of your Leviticus Bible reading plan. Okay? This is, this is a major issue, and God wants to help you deal with it. Okay, so make it a daily practice. Work on memorizing these things so that you can recall them at any time, especially when you're tempted. If you need to, make this the entirety of your quiet time in the morning. If you don't have any devotional time right now, start with this. Read these texts several times. Ask the Lord to strengthen your faith to believe these truths today when you're tempted. And one of the things I do, just as I'm trying to take my heart to the mat, is I, I obviously journal, you know, uh, I'm a disciple of Pastor Brody. Um, I, I journal a lot. And one of the things I do is that I, I try to write out my prayers to God on these issues. Because it gives me time. I can think through them. I can find scripture references. And I can just go to war with my heart in prayer before God. And then guess what I can do if it's written down? I can pray that prayer every day. So what would that sound like? for this man who's battling this fear at work. Father, you know how afraid I am tempted to be with this new work responsibility and all the implications surrounding not getting it done. But here, at the beginning of the day, I know that you are with me. Like you promise. I know that this deadline has been moved up ultimately from your hand and that you're using it to conform me more to the image of Jesus. It's hard, but I know that eventually this will produce the peaceful fruit of righteousness in my life. Help me not to distrust you or to jump to worst case scenarios as I work today. Help me to entrust the future to you, including whether or not we get this project done. I'm trusting that you will take care of me and that you love me. Amen. Now imagine what would happen if this man prayed that prayer every day for the next month. Even that one act alone would be very transformative. Alright? Next, renewing your mind would also look like planning out what obedience looks like in the moment. Planning out what your life could look like if you really believed the truth that you're meditating on. So all I'm talking about here is is you're, you're essentially asking yourself, okay, I've got this, this truth in front of me, I'm praying about it, and if I really believed it, like if I, if I really thought this was true, and I staked my entire life on this truth, what would that look like today? What, what, what would that look like in that moment where I'm tempted? What would I do in that moment if I really believed this deeply, if this is part of my convictions? What decisions would I make in the moments that I'm anxious and tempted to act sinfully? If I believe this truth, what should I do instead? How should I act, even if I still feel afraid? Now this is, this, this is part of the mind renewal process, I think, as we're charting it out and thinking about what obedience would look like in the moment if we really believe. 
So for this man, what might this look like? As he thinks through, in the moment he's, he's anxious, he knows he's going to be tempted to be short with his coworkers. So, okay, I know that what this would look like if I'm trusting Jesus is I can be patient with my coworkers. I can entrust the, if, even if they make a mistake on the project and it costs us more time, I can, I can handle that with grace. And, wow, if I can just handle that with grace, like what a testimony might I be in the workplace? How might I glorify Christ? How might Christ use that fruit for his glory? You see how this begins to change everything? Wow, I know I'm tempted to, I'm tempted to obsess about worst-case scenarios when the project's lagging behind. What could I think about instead? And putting, giving yourself examples of what you might do in that moment. That's all I'm talking about here of, of planning out what your life could look like if you really believed the truth. And that leads us to our, our third practice here, and we'll, we'll cover this briefly. It doesn't just stop by, by renewing our minds. We have to actually get dressed in the new self. We have to, as Paul says, put on the new self. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul's final process to help us fight by faith is what he describes as putting on the new self. He stays with this clothing metaphor through this, these verses. And he's saying that we've got to get dressed up. We've got to get dressed in this new self. But what exactly is it? What is this new self? Well, notice how he describes it. He says it's already been created for us. Meaning it's not something we create ourselves. Christ has earned this new self for us. And Paul says it's created after the very image of God. And that echoes the, the first man and woman. He's referring to the new humanity, to what it means to be truly human, to everything that was intended for Adam and Eve before the fall. It's the character of the renewed image bearer. And this character is perfectly exemplified in the Lord Jesus. In other words, this new man resembles the moral character of God Himself. In fact, Paul says the newly minted man, the newly minted humanity, is characterized by, he says, righteousness and holiness that's springing up from the truth. So, what does that mean? That means then that Paul's calling us to become in real time what we already possess in Christ. He's calling us to live out the new identity that Christ has already obtained for us. He's already purchased the wardrobe. He's given it to you. Now you've got to learn how to put it on. You've got to learn how to put on things like, as he's going to say in the rest of Ephesians 4, things like truthfulness with others. Things like restraint when you're angry. Things like a hard work ethic. Things like generosity with your resources. Things like edifying speech that builds up. Things like acts of kindness. Things like tenderheartedness or graciousness when you're, when you're wrong. And the apex of it is learning how to love like Christ. It also includes things like sexual purity 
and wisdom. And it even bleeds over on in Ephesians 5 into the home, into the workplace. This new self has implications for every sphere of life. And so these are a quick snapshot of the newness that Christ wants us to put on, to learn to live in. He wants us to, to stop pursuing things of no value, sin, and to pursue things of infinite value, things like righteousness and holiness, things that are fruitful and that will transcend into eternity. This is incredible. An incredible opportunity we have as the people of God. <clears throat> but how do we do it? especially when it comes to overcoming our besetting sin patterns and these wayward desires. Well, it starts with recalling truth in the moment of temptation. All right, so you've, you've gotten tactical. This person knows that they're going to be tempted at work, and they're going to be very tempted when the boss comes by. So they're getting tactical, and they know, okay, I've got to recall this truth in the moment of temptation, just like Jesus does in his battle with Satan in Luke 4. When he's tempted, where does he go? The Word of God. So we've got to bring this to bear in our moments of temptation. And then, what it looks like is yielding your will to Christ's will in that moment of temptation. Easy to say, hard to do. Yielding your will to Christ in the moment of temptation. And again, Jesus is our example in Luke 22 when he says those famous words, not what? My will, but yours be done. He yields his will to the Father's. Notice what he didn't say. Notice what I'm, I'm not saying. He's not saying you obey if you your desires are in line. He's saying you yield your desires to Christ's desires. Which in layman's terms, that means you're not going to want to do this. Okay? But there's a choice that you face in this moment. And it's a choice of not what do you feel, but what do you believe. Maybe better who are you going to believe? In that moment of temptation, you have a choice. You have a fork in the road, and you're going to say, I am either going to believe Jesus, who has never lied, or I'm going to believe my old self, and all it does is lie. You have a choice of whose agenda are you going to obey. Are you going to obey Christ's agenda or Satan's agenda? You have a choice for whose kingdom are you going to build. Are you going to build Christ's kingdom or the enemy's kingdom? All by your choice of whether or not you're going to mortify that anxiety tomorrow in the workplace. And you, want, you won't want to do this, okay? And this is where we get tripped up. We think, I think, if I just renew my mind, this will be easy. Right? 
if I just memorize the verses, then my will's going to get in line and obedient. We're just going to coast in obedience. If I can just tweak my thinking, then I won't crave evil anymore and I'll obey like I'm supposed to. But unfortunately, that's not the way it works. Our renewed mind gives us leverage. It gives us motivation by the Spirit's power. But we also must yield our wills to Christ in faith, regardless of what we feel. And this is what the Bible describes as death to self. And the last time I checked, death does not feel good. The mortification of our flesh and the power of the Spirit. If we expect it to be easy, we will be easily discouraged and we will give up the moment our desires don't change. And we might even find ourselves resonating with what the culture is saying. Maybe this is my identity. A lot's riding on this. So we've got to move forward here. But we've got to learn in the moment to yield our wills to what Christ wants. And finally, this looks like getting dressed in the new self looks like constantly practicing this new obedience day in and day out. Now, this is the sort of, it sounds, it sounds hard but it's actually very encouraging. Because the way we grow is by just doing what I said, yielding your will over and over and over and over again, day in and day out. That is the growth process. Those little moments of where you choose to follow Christ instead of following what your own heart wants. That is the growth process. When we obey by faith, over time we're forging new convictions. Obedience cements those convictions. It shows us that we really do believe these texts, even when it costs us. Now, if, we're not, we don't have time to go here, but Ephesians, uh, uh, Hebrews 5.14 is a wonderful text on this principle about the constant obedience and what that does for us, how it increases our discernment to choose the good. And the idea here is to leave you with this. It's give you a couple illustrations of what's happening. When we constantly choose to obey, you can, think of, you can think of your old self and the old paths, the old lies that you believe, and the old sinful actions as like an old, well-worn path through the woods. You know it. You can walk it in the dark. You don't even have to realize you're on it most of the time. That's the old path. That's the old you. That's the old nature. Now in Christ... He's given you His Spirit. He's given you the truth. And now you're looking at the woods with no trail. And Christ is out in front of you with a machete and He's saying, let's go. We've got to cut a new path that leads to life. Because that one you're on leads to death. We've got to, lead it. We've got to cut a new path. And every time you choose to obey, you're hacking the trees back. That's how you're forging this new path in the Spirit's power. So if you say, oh, this is too hard. I'm just going to stop then you're, that's, you're, you're losing the path. You're, the, this, the path's going to overgrow. And if you're not on the old path, what's going to happen over time? Weeds are going to overgrow that path. So obedience, the constant obedience, every time you obey, you are hacking at that new path. 
And I'm talking about obedience as you believe God, right? Over time, the old path will grow over, the new path will become second nature. Or, if you like to work out, which I obviously don't, um, then, I should, but I don't, um, it's, it's very similar to that whole process. Obedience is like the rep in the weight room. It builds the muscle that's going to make you stronger over time. If you stop doing the reps, you're not going to grow. So in this, the constant obedience, the constant practice, day in and day out, even the little teeny tiny steps of obedience, that's going somewhere. It's building something. It's doing something for you. And this is incredibly encouraging when it comes to failure. Because let's say you, you don't hit the weight room in the morning out of one day out of a month. Did you lose all of the muscle that you gained? You didn't. Your obedience has, has, is growing you spiritually. And let's say you sin, you slip up, you get deceived, you give in to your temptation. It's not like you failed and you're out at your ground zero again. The obedience has, has grown you over time, is cementing those convictions, and now it's just to get back on the path. Confess it, repent, get back to him. And continue building that muscle in the weight room as you're renewing your mind and obeying by faith. Now, you're all probably wondering, what in the world is this chart in front of me? Okay? Um, the chart in front of you, we're going to end here. The chart in front of you is some simple steps you can take if there's that, if you think about the one issue in your life, you're saying, man, if I, could just, if I could just get a handle on this, there would be so much fruit in my life. Take that issue, and then this chart is sort of a simple way to follow the steps that I've listed out in this lesson. A simple way to kind of battle those desires and try to make progress in your Christian life. And it just, in each column, it asks you some sort of questions, some reflection questions, and just answer those questions. The first one's kind of, what are your circumstances? You know, what's going on? What are, the temp- what are the temptations? The next one, I don't remember exactly what I said on the chart. I don't have one in front of me, but it's, it's, the idea is getting in that real. What's going on in your inner man or inner woman? What are you saying to yourself? Get that out on paper. The next step, just evaluate your heart. Figure out what's going on. Take it back to Scripture. And then the fourth step is just plan for obedience. What would it look like if you really obeyed that, those Scriptures? And this is the path forward for us as believers, as as simple and as non-profound as this seems, if Paul were here with us today, he would say, resist the pressures of this strange new world. Resist the temptation to identify with your sinful desires. Don't adopt them as your identity. That is the old you, the deceived you, the corrupt you. Your new identity is bound up in Christ and follow Him in that. All right? A lot more we could say, but we're going to end there because the door's starting to open. Okay, let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. We pray that you would help us along this path. Thank you for the church. Thank you for how they motivate, how they motivate us to continue to follow Christ in these ways. And thank you, Father, for the gift of your spirit. We pray that you would uh, produce fruit in our lives as we seek to entrust ourselves to you on a day-by-day basis. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, you're dismissed.